We're in our second to last uh, RUF of the semester. And uh, so this week and then next week is our final one. I really want to encourage you uh, to come next week. We're going to be saying some goodbyes to uh, some very special people, our interns. Um, so it'll be sad. But you'll want to be here because they're awesome. <laughs> um, and also, just to say, like this is such a great way to to spend part of our week together, to worship God, to be together, to be shaped by God's Word. Um, and I just want to encourage you to finish that out with us through the semester. A big part of what we believe at RUF is that everyone who comes through those doors, um, whether Christian or non-Christian or just not really sure where you are, everyone who comes through those doors, we believe, needs Jesus. And that's something that's relevant for each person here. Um, so wherever you're coming from, in the spiritual spectrum, we just want to say, welcome. I need Jesus. We all need Jesus with you. We hope this is a place you can kind of figure out who he is and grow in that together. And so um, it's good to be here with you tonight as we do RUF. If you don't know, uh, we're doing a sermon series in the book of Acts, which you don't need to know anything about that other than it's the fifth book in the New Testament, and it's just what does Jesus do through his people after his death and resurrection? Like the gospel going out into the world through God's people and moving out uh, in a way that changes lives and transforms people and heals people and changes the world. It's just this pebble dropped into the pond of humanity and the ripples go all out, all over the place. And so we're looking at that uh, tonight and we're reading uh, tonight from Acts chapter 17. Uh, this is a missionary story of Paul where he's in the city of Athens, Athens, Greece, and He's meeting people and he's telling them the gospel and he's doing it with pretty high level intellectual people, which I think has a lot to say um, to us tonight as we're at UNC. So we're in Acts chapter 17, verses 22 uh, through 32, or 18 through 22, sorry. Whoop. All right, some of the Epicurean and Stone philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We should know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. He's actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. That's God's word. Let me pray for us. 
Father, we do pray that you would meet us tonight through your word and through your spirit. Um, Lord, that as we come to you, Lord, that you would approach us with the good news of your gospel. Lord, shape how we think about you with that. Shape how we feel about ourselves and think about ourselves in it. Shape the horizons of our life and the ways in which we move through the world. God, guide us in this tonight. Lead us in it. And as you do, lead us to Jesus, to his grace and his truth, to his power and his presence. In his name we pray. Amen. Cool. So, uh, I don't know if any of y'all like podcasts. I'm kind of a, a podcast person. I dabble more. There's people who are fanatical about it. I'm a, I'm a dabbler in it. I listen to a few out there. Uh, Limetown is great. It's, it's an amazing sci-fi win. But one of my all-time favorites is uh, This American Life. It's by a guy named Ira Glass. He's kind of the front edges of the podcast movement from way back in the day. And I actually saw an interview with him on YouTube not too long ago, so... Very different genre, right? Where you can actually see his face. And uh, in the interview, he's talking about how he was trying to do a story on Chicago gangs and trying to find out like how they move, what their life is like, what are the people like who are in gangs, what's the appeal, the whole nine yards. And he's trying to meet people who know about gangs. And one of the only people he can find that know about gangs that will, are willing to talk to him about him is uh, the police and this missionary couple named Glenn and Jan. And he said that Glenn and Jan were really fascinating because they're like this sweet white couple that would go and like meet with these like hardened Chicago gang people and they would build a relationship with them and talk to them and care for them. And they would really start to try to talk to them in a way that they could understand about the gospel. And so in, in this kind of gang culture, the way that you would get into the gang is that if you wanted to get in, people would jump you in, which basically meant that you would get really badly beaten to get into the gang, maybe a little bit of hospital recovery time, definitely some just general recovery time, and then you would be in the gang. And if you wanted to get out of the gang, they would jump you out. And so Glenn and Jan would build these relationships with these gang members, and then they would tell them the gospel in a way that really resonated with gang life. So they would say, you know, just like in a gang... There's somebody that's calling the shots. God calls the shots. But the way that you get into with him and with his gang is not that you get jumped in, it's that Jesus got jumped in for you. And God did that because he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. And the way that they would talk to these people, and it was amazing because our glass is relating this, and he's, he's not a Christian, he's an atheist, but he loved these people because of how winsome they were with these gang members. And the way that they built a relationship with them and talked with them and spoke to them in a way that resonated with their life. I tell that story because I don't know how the word evangelism strikes you. For some of us, it's a great term, super positive, we love it, I'm, I'm for evangelism. But for others of us, it conjures up kind of televangelists who kind of want to rope us in and take our money, or people who kind of knock on the door, don't really know you, just give you a spiel, and then kind of move on. But if you look at the word evangelism, it's related to the Greek word for uh, gospel. It's just the verb form of it. Which means that evangelism is just doing good news, or good newsing a person. Which is what Glenn and Jan were doing to these gang members. Tonight I want to talk about what does it mean to actually do evangelism on this campus? What does it look like to actually care for people in a way that connects them to the gospel, connects them to the church, to the world, to God's word? 
Tonight I want to look at three things from this chapter. I want to ask, to whom should we go? I want to ask, to how should we go? I want to ask, with what should we go? To whom, how, with what should we go in the gospel? So what, to whom should we go? Look here at uh, the very start of this, verse 16. Paul is waiting around in Athens for his friends. He's basically just walking around the city, checking out the sites. Athens in Paul's day is an ancient, beautiful place. Its peak was about 500 years before Paul gets there. But it's still got tons of culture, tons of art, incredible music, incredible history, philosophy. I mean, it's a, it's a peak city. And he's walking around, kind of being a tourist, and he sees that there's a lot of idols there. Some of the ancient Greek writers who described Athens in Paul's day said that it was like a forest of idols. Like everywhere you're going, you're bumping into another idol or another statue or another altar. And so he sees this and he starts to debate and argue with the people that are there. People called Epicureans and Stoics. And both of these kinds of people are really smart. Both of them are kind of philosopher type folks. They're very moral. They're just very intelligent, very moral people. And for many of us, those are the people that God has placed in our lives as well. Like reasonably intelligent, reasonably moral people who like the Epicureans or like the Stoics are working really hard to deal with the realities of the world and themselves, both good and bad. Some might have some point of contact with the Christian faith, others don't. But the way that Paul is dealing with them here kind of gives us an approach just by talking with them, reasoning with them, meeting them in the marketplace of ideas. Which, I don't know about you, but if you've come to North Carolina at all, it's very hard not to meet intelligent, hard-working, very moral people. And I know that for many of us, those people can seem like their attitude, or even sometimes just the what's in the water is this kind of sense of, I'm not sure that I need religion at all. I'm not sure I need Christianity at all. I think that I could live a more moral and more rational life than you can without God. Plus, isn't religion dying and the world getting more secular like I am? Like, who hasn't encountered that here? I definitely have. Let's unpack that for a minute. For one, I want to say that Christianity is not about morality. Like, to be a Christian is to inherently raise your hand and say, I'm not a moral person. I'm not moral enough to make it on my own. God has to do something for me and my morality that I can't do for myself. So, like, yeah, everyone is more moral than me. I'll go ahead and tell you that. Like, everybody's more moral than I am. That's what it means for me to be a Christian. But, two, I'm going to get a little teachery here and throw more figures and facts at you than I normally do, but I think it could be helpful here. Isn't the world getting more secular? Am I on the wrong side of history if I'm a Christian or if I'm a religious person? Well, A 2015 Pew study projects that the percentage of people who are non-religious or secular is actually going to decline worldwide by about 3% in the next 40 years. So there will be more religious people 40 years from now than there are today. A guy named Eric Kaufman, who himself is not a religious person at all, wrote a book called Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? And he says that the reason there will be more religious people in the future is because of two things. Retention and conversion. One, Kaufman shows that almost all of the newly secular people come from really kind of liberal takes on traditional religion. Uh, he, that's not a political thing, that's more of a you know, 
kind of going along with what culture has got going on with it. But Kaufman writes this. He says, Secularization mainly erodes the taken-for-granted, moderate face that trade on being mainstream and established. So think about it like, you know, my grandparents were Presbyterian. My parents were Presbyterian. I guess I'm Presbyterian because I went to a Presbyterian church on Christmas and Easter. Like what Kaufman is saying is that that kind of faith is not going to last for much longer. Um, in terms of conversion... The growth of Christianity in non-Western world is just really stunning. In 1910, only about 10% of Africa's population was Christian. Okay, so a little over 100 years ago, about 10% was Christian. Two years from now, 50% of Africa will be Christian. In 100 years, the whole continent of Africa is going to 50% Christian. That's crazy, y'all. Plus, religious people, regardless of race, nationality, uh, class, tend to have more children... Because they tend to have more hope for the future. So according to our best evidence, the world isn't getting more secular. It's actually getting more religious. Okay? So I don't think we're on the wrong side of history here. Not that that would matter if this stuff was true anyway. But just saying. Two, is unbelief more reasonable than belief? Is unbelief more reasonable than belief? You get a sense from people sometimes that like science is the only judge of what's real and not real. And that we shouldn't believe anything unless we can kind of empirically decide it right. But can you apply that consistently across the board? Like if science is the judge of what's real and what's not real, then how do you scientifically prove what you believe about human rights, about justice, about morality? Science is great at telling you how fast the speed of light is. It's terrible about telling you, like, how should I spend my money? Or who should we uh, give health care to or who should we not give health care to? Ethics is an incredibly part, important part of our lives, but not one scrap of ethics can be proven in the lab, can it? And lots of very moral, secular people don't believe in moral absolutes. Like, whatever's good for you, as long as it you know, doesn't hurt anyone else, is fine. But they still have very strongly held moral convictions about justice and equality. And they kind of believe those things are universal. But how can it be both? What if the morality that you choose clashes with someone else's morality... Like, how do you decide between those two? I heard a story recently about a women's studies professor who went to North Africa to argue for women's rights, that women should be able to have more access to education, more access to work outside of the home, more access to birth control. And, you know, I'm, I'm for a lot of those things myself. I'm not knocking that. But she gets there, and she makes her case before the authorities, and she's just flat-out rejected, like totally rejected after making this case for women's rights. And she was furious, like any like, intelligent person would be is if they went that far. And, she, and so she argues with these men, and they say, you know, well, ma'am, we've read your work. And if what you say is true, then everyone gets to honor the code of ethics that best fits them. And if that's true, then the one that best fits us is that women don't have the same rights as men. But for you, maybe it's different. And they turned the tables on her, and she was furious about it. But looking back on it, she said, I really didn't have a leg to stand on because that is the position that I held. And she really didn't have a, a way to go forward in that. <laughs> Ethics are just so important to moral people. And they should be. I'm glad that secular humanists tend to be moral. Like, I'm glad they're not barbarians or something. But that leads to problems, doesn't it? And look, I know there's just like, that's one small slice of UNC. There are other religions out there too. There are people who don't know what they believe. 
But I just I want to put my finger on this one because I think it's a tune that gets played pretty loudly in our culture, and everybody feels it. Like you're either listening to it or wrestling with it or unpacking how empty it is so you can go forward towards truth. But part of what the gospel does is it always moves towards people where there are, and it calls them to deal with the true reality that God has made and how they're living in it in a real way. So if those are the people we need to talk to, how should we go? How should we go? Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, that word provoked is a word we don't really use a lot in terms of ourselves. I don't feel provoked very much, or I wouldn't use that for y'all very often. But just, And just read it, you can think, you know, Paul's got his tourist bags, he's got his fanny pack, he's got sunscreen on his nose, he's checking out the sites, he looks around at all these idols, and he just kind of goes, huh, I don't like this, these aren't real, and, it's, and he's provoked inside of himself, right? And that's, that's kind of the image I get when I think about it. The word there is way, way, way stronger than that. Uh, according to one uh, commentator, he said that the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, it's very old, describes the way that God looks at idol worship in the Old Testament with the word that Luke uses here for Paul and being provoked. Like, this is not a gentle verb. That God looks on humanity's idols, and it's an affront to him. And because he looks on people and sees them destroying themselves by worshiping something that is not God in a place that should be God, it's an affront, and he's emotionally involved in it. And that's the verb that Luke uses for Paul's reaction. It just shows that God's kind of been rubbing off on Paul. But here's the irony here, is that Paul grew up thinking that he knew God. And he really didn't. Not until he met Jesus. And he was reconciled to God through him so he could actually commune with God and be set free by God. And now he's looking around and walking around all these people that think they know God or a God, or a pantheon of gods. And he's, he's feeling something very deeply inside of himself, because he, I can only imagine, he must be feeling, this is kind of me too, or this was me too. I mean, read Romans 1 sometimes. Paul does not have a mild reaction to idols. But when he opens his mouth, what does he say? He empathizes with these guys. Look at verse 22 here. He says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Like, the guns are not blazing, right? He's being really winsome and warm so that these people will keep listening to him. And I think it just shows that people do not want us to come to them as though they were our project. Like, they want us to come to them with warmth, with conversation, with empathy. They don't want us to try to hook up to their head and download a bunch of Christian arguments for Jesus. But they want to know that we really care about them and know them and get what it's like to sit in their seat. And a big part of that is being able to communicate with people and speak to them in ways that really make sense of their lives. There was a lady, she was a writer at the start of the 20th century, named Dorothy Sayers. She's one of the first female graduates of Oxford. She wrote some famous detective stories. In 1940, the BBC taps her uh, to write a 12-part Life of Christ. This is going to be like done on on radio, like the old school version of podcast. And she makes the dialogue as she writes this 12-part series sound modern. Like it was not like these and nows, like the King James Version. It sounded like it was American slang in the 40s. And people listened to it and they 
completely protested it. Like, people were writing to Churchill, they were writing to the Archbishop of Canterbury, trying to get her to, them to ban her plays. But in the aftermath of all this, Dorothy Sayers gets letters from people saying, you know, this is really the first time in their lives the Bible made sense to them. Or that it felt like, you know, Jesus is someone I would actually like to know. Or that would understand me if I sat down with him. And dozens of people became con- got converted because they listened to this radio drama that she wrote. It was so good that C.S. Lewis used her play as part of his Easter devotionals for the rest of his life. It was really top-notch. We need Christians who can take hold of truth and communicate it effectively to people who aren't Christians. God's people are called to make the gospel really, really relevant to those around them. And they're called to do so through the way that we speak, through the way that we act, I mean, really all evangelism begins by coming into a relationship with God and really loving Him and enjoying Him and then loving the people around you out of that and giving them the same experience of the good news that you've received. That you really can't do this until you receive from God something of the goodness and the truth of the gospel. So, with what should we go then? With what should we go to the people in our lives? One, we should go with intentionality. We should go with intentionality. Like Jesus intentionally approached humanity and took on flesh and took on the cross, Paul's intentionally going to the Athenians. He's in the marketplace, which is not just for buying and selling, but it's for debating and talking, which is exactly why RUF is so for you being a student. God's called you to be here on this campus to prep you for the rest of your life, for sure. But some of that is also to try to help people understand the good news. In most other times in your life, it's going to seem kind of rude to try to convince people of your belief system. Right? But when you're on a university campus, like we are, that's essentially what's happening all the time. People are trying to do that to you all the time. This is this free market and exchange of ideas and discussions that happen in classrooms, that happen in your dorm, that happen over lunch. None of those things are value-neutral. There are, what, there are places of debate, places where you're trying on the good and the true and the beautiful and trying to see what fits, what story do I really live in. Evangelism fits into that. God's called you here and just into some of those relationships for that. So you should invite people to pit sit. And you should invite people to quad squad. And you should connect people to the interns. You should host a regular hangout at your place and invite people there who don't do the religion thing. But build relationships with people that lead to the gospel. Two, we need to learn how to listen. In verse 26, when Paul says, In him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Do you know what he's doing there? Paul is quoting pagan poets off the top of his head. I mean, people who are talking about Zeus, and he's saying, you know, you've got something right here, but I want to help you take another step towards the truth. We have to learn to listen to what the culture is saying, to what the people around us are saying, and help them take the next step. Read the books. Watch the TV shows. Have a dialogue with people. We don't live in a time and a place where people seem to be able to disagree and still be in relationship. Do that. Model it. Learn what it looks like. We also need to learn how to create. We need to learn how to create. 
To actually change the culture, you've got to love the culture, and you've also kind of got to be on the edge of it. You can't be absorbed by it. You've got to speak to it and not become irrelevant to it. I'm not like not be just trendy, but you've got to show people that Jesus is relevant and his cross is relevant to all people at all times, at all places. There's a guy who used to do InterVarsity at Harvard, his name's Andy Crouch. He wrote a book called Culture Making. He said if you want to change culture, if you want to evangelize culture, you actually have to make culture. And Christians, y'all have done that in some pretty cheesy ways. But it doesn't have to be like that. If you're an artist, or a poet, or a designer, or a writer, I really want to encourage you to take some time this summer and read Flannery O'Connor's collection of essays, Mystery and Manners. She kills it, kills it on what it means to be a Christian and not be cheesy. Even if you're not an artist, you can still build something, though. It's called the church. You should join one. You should join one that preaches the gospel, that provides the sacraments. You should build it up with your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your time. Paul spent his whole life building the church. And long after all these idols get smashed and buried in the dirt and dug up and put in museums, there are still ancient churches in Athens near where Paul preached the gospel. Join a church. Join one. God's at work in the world in lots of ways. He is especially at work in the world through the church. Where the gospel is preached, the sacraments are received, and God's people gather to worship Him. Build something in that way, even if you're not a a creative person. Fourth, we need to learn how to die to ourselves. We need to learn how to die to ourselves. Jesus will always call you out of your comfort. And we should not expect the world, or even the church at times, to always clap for us when we do. At the end of the story, Paul gets mocked. He leaves. A few people become Christians, but not many. This is not one of Paul's success stories. You can search the New Testament for Paul's letter to the Athenians. There's not one. Has Paul failed here, though? Not at all. He's been faithful to the people that God's placed in his life. And that doesn't translate into instant, immediate, huge success. Which means that Paul has to die to his idea of success. Just like we do. Jesus calls us to life in his kingdom. And to evangelism. And to mission. Knowing that even even as we go there, we may have to die to applause. And yet, our comfort in that is that we're rich people. We're rich in the treasure of the kingdom. We have the pearl of great price. We're rich because our citizenship is in heaven. We're exiles who are passing through. And so we can die to the status of a place. We can die to our idea of success. We can just give ourselves away to the people around us. And the fact that we don't tend to think about that or think in those terms shows that you know, maybe we're a little compromised by the world at times. But to actually do mission and engage with culture means that we have to hold our citizenship in the world with a very light grasp, and we have to hold our citizenship in God's kingdom and to Jesus with a very tight grasp. That's really our identity. That's really our comfort and our joy. Finally, we have to go with the gospel. We have to go with the gospel. Paul grounds his sermon in the story of Jesus. He doesn't say his name, but it's Jesus' story. He shows that God has both the things that are necessary to heal the brokenness of the world. He has absolute justice, and he has jaw-dropping grace. 
Look, the world needs God's justice. It will never be healed apart from it. People long for justice. They cry out for justice all the time. And so part of what is good about the good news is that justice will be done. No one will get away with the evil they've done against people, against minorities, against the environment, against God. Justice will be done. And yet, the other part of the good news is that the gospel holds out grace. Free, unmerited love. Because you really can't ask for justice for the world and not expect it to come to you as well, right? If that were to happen, that would not be good for us. And yet, in His mercy, God takes our justice onto Himself and pays the penalty for that. And He gives us His love. For free. Everyone is broken. All of us fall short. Yet God gives you the very thing you need to stand in front of Him and not just be okay, but to be welcomed, to be enjoyed, to be loved and embraced. You cry out for justice. And you cry out for love. God's willing to meet you right where you're at. In your ignorance, in your confusion, in your maturity, in your sin... And what was Paul's story? He's on a road trip to go persecute Christians. He meets Jesus who forgives him and gives him the the great job of telling the good news. Like, what if that's your story too? Like, what if someone in here just hates the idea of religion and hates the idea of Christianity and yet they're here and they're hearing the good news and you could actually believe that God would love you and care for you, and be real for you, and call you into something like this. And God meets you exactly where you're at. He calls us out of our lives and into His life. And I think that RUF is great. Because whether you're here as a Christian or not, we're here because we need Jesus. We need His justice to heal the world we love and live in. And we need His grace to heal us. And that's what this community is about. And so I want to end with this. I was reading a story recently about a man and his wife, and they have a daughter, uh, and she was born with some developmental problems. Uh, He didn't name exactly what they were, but they'd led to his daughter being deaf, not being able to develop fine motor skills. She couldn't walk until she was three. I mean, normally when you're you're able to walk around uh, 14, 15 months, something like that, she couldn't walk until she was three. So imagine the anxiety of these parents. She's deaf, she doesn't have motor skills, she can't walk. And then suddenly one day, she starts to learn how to crawl. And the next day, she starts to learn how to like stand up and pull herself up. And she starts to grab onto things and pull herself across the room. And then, one day she can walk. And can you imagine the joy in that house? Like the roof just blew off that place. Cameras came out, relatives got called. People were screaming and clapping and yelling. Ice cream was fed to said girl, as it should be. Good parents celebrate when their kids take little steps. Little steps. You have a good father who celebrates when you take little steps towards him, when you take little steps in mission, when you take little steps in loving one another praying for each other, caring for this campus. You have a really good father who celebrates that. You should do mission and you should care for one another, not in a pressure cooker, 
but in the knowledge that you have a Father that celebrates you and enjoys you and enjoys the fact that you take little steps. And that's our offer to you tonight, to come and sit in the love of a Father who celebrates and enjoys His children, even when they don't know how to go forward. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you care for us and you love us even as we struggle with mission, even as we're afraid of it. Lord, even as we're afraid to take the next step and love the people right next to us, you celebrate our little faltering, little halting steps. God, give us what we need to step forward. Give us what we need to learn how to walk and move forward. And Lord, for those of us here who don't know you, God, I pray that you would move in our hearts that we would know you. Or move in our hearts that we take another step closer to who you really are tonight. Lord, give us what we need. We all need Jesus. Amen. We all stand.